Psalm 150. It's our Old Testament reading and our sermon text this evening. Psalm 150. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And our New Testament reading, Revelation 19, 1-10, we hear this hallelujah, praise the Lord, taken up in the new heavens and new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 1-10. through 10. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Thank him for it. Let's pray as we come to hear his word preached. Father, once again, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to you. We are poor in spirit. We are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, after you, O God. We pray once again you'd fill us, you'd feed us, you'd satisfy us, you'd show us that you are good. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Show us our Lord Jesus. Strengthen our faith in him. Correct us, Father. Convict us where we, are, where, where we are walking in sin. Confirm us in, in the assurance of our salvation. Shore up our faith. Give us wisdom as how to walk and how to please you. All this we ask. Uh, for you've promised it, Father, by your word, by your spirit to do. All this we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Sometimes when we study Scripture, it's, it's good to get down in the weeds, to kind of take out the, 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 the magnifying glass and get down and look at the details, um, uh, the microscopic things. And then there's other times where it's good not to do that and to, and to uh, uh, get a drone view or a 30,000-foot flyover kind of view. And our study in the Psalms that we've been doing this summer has been more of that, that 30,000-foot flyover um, we've kind of we, we started at, at Psalm one, took off there. We, we dipped down here and there. Other Psalms, uh, punctuating the Psalter um, to give uh, 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 context and such. Though we've we've been flying at a higher altitude, looking at the big picture of the whole book of the Psalms. Um, and and the idea here is that we would come away from this with a better sense of how to see the Psalms as a whole to see uh, the, the themes, the major themes of the different books of the Psalter, and to see how it fits into God's story of history, redemptive history, and then to see how we fit into that story. Because often when we read the Psalms, we can read them, uh, we can kind of just grab them and, and take them right to ourselves in our context, and that's a good thing to do. But we want to keep in mind, this is part of God's story. He's bringing me into his story as I read the Psalms. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way to, to do application. So we've been doing this kind of big picture flyover. And as I said, looking at these different books of the Psalter. And I've been drawing a lot on the work of O. Palmer Robertson. He's a theologian, teaches at a seminary in Uganda. It's not the same one Rick Daniels is at. It's, a, it's another. It might be a seminary. It might be a theological school. I'm not sure which. But O. Palmer Robertson has this book, The Flow of the Psalms. It's a, it's a wonderful book that goes into much more depth than we've been able to. And I recommend it to you if you're interested in studying these things more. But anyway, uh, we've taken from him these, these five themes, for each one for each book of the Psalter here. And the first book we said was about confrontation, God setting up his king, his anointed, his Messiah, uh, uh, and setting up a kingdom through that Messiah. And, and that book is a lot about how that Messiah is in conflict with the nations around them. But by the end of the book, we see God has established his king. And then in, and then in book two of the Psalter, we see how the, the big theme there is communication. As this kingdom God has established now turns out to the nations and proclaims to them, God is king, you come and you submit. You come and you serve this king. Uh, and, then, and then we get to book three, and, and there we see devastation. As you know, you, this maps on with the history of Israel. The kings fail. The, the, the anointed ones fail. Uh, and they bring the country of Israel and the country of Judah down with them into their idolatry. So God sends exile on them. And they're devastated by it. And we read there in Psalm, uh, in, in the third book of the Psalter, of the destruction of the temple and the, uh, just the, the catastrophic event that was for the people of Israel. Devastation. And this personal devastation there too. Psalm 88. A very personal, grief-stricken psalm that ends with just one glimmer of hope. And then we hit maturation, maturity, in the fourth book of the Psalms. You know, we saw last time, Psalm 90. turns. It goes all the way back to Moses. It goes all the way back to uh, this, this bedrock of of the covenant, and it says God is from everlasting to everlasting, and, and even though everything in my life, the temple's burning, and I'm in exile, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest there in the everlasting dwelling place of my God. 
These are psalms where God has used the exile and the devastation to mature his people in their faith. Psalms of, of maturing faith. And then finally, the last book of the Psalter, Psalms 107 to 150, the, the big theme there is consummation. Consummation. This is, the, uh, this is the great conclusion to the whole thing. God has brought his people from establishing that kingdom down through exile, back from exile now, and they're looking to the great consummation that is to come. Consummation, right? That's a big word. It means something being summed up, finalized, something coming to its great goal. We speak of a marriage being consummated. The consummation that's being uh, talked about here in this final book of the Psalms is the goal that the Lord has been uh, after the whole time. Where, you know, the, the beginning of the covenant. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Consummation. That's, that's what we see in Psalm 150. Is God and his people are brought together in perfect fellowship forever. The final collection of the Psalter uh, is focused on this great consummation. It definitely includes some of the other elements, but that's the big, the big theme. It's a fitting way to end the book, isn't it? This glorious book of Psalms. Uh, it's, it begins with Psalm 107, celebrating the steadfast love of the Lord, which never ceases, uh, his, his, which, which endures forever. Um, it celebrates the return from exile to the land. Uh, it's, it speaks here about the, the coming of the Messiah, Psalm 110. It speaks of the Lord as king and the Messiah as king together in Psalm 118. It speaks of all these things as it, as it looks at these aspects of the great joy consummation of God and his people being brought together. But then at the final end of the book, we get five psalms. Psalms 146 to 150. And these are like the grand finale to the whole book. Um, uh, they're, they're like the, the finale, the ending of a symphony or, or a fireworks display. Right? When, when, they, when they shoot up everything they've got and it's just exploding and it's... it's, it's it's uh, stunning to see. That's what these final five psalms in the Psalter are. Uh, uh, they each begin and end with the words, Praise the Lord, or as, the, as it is in Hebrew, Hallelujah. Uh, Hallel, praise, Yah, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, Yahweh. Praise the, the covenant Lord. So you have these five psalms, the fireworks display, the grand finale at the end of the book, and the final one of all of them, is Psalm 150. And that's what we're looking at tonight. And uh, it's about worship. It's about worship. It's all about worship. It's really about nothing else, is it? Worship is relevant for us, loved ones. Uh, we can think of, I think we can forget that sometimes, that, that worship is, is, is super hyper relevant. It's, um, we, we think of you know, hot-button issues as relevant. Struggles of our daily lives as relevant. And they are, right? That, these are important things to us. The culture wars, etc., etc. These are relevant things. They're pressing things. They're on our minds. And it feels like that's what I want to hear the Lord talk to me about. That's what would make a difference to me. But, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't judge relevance based on ourselves, but based on God. Things are relevant or important, not in relation to me, but in relation to him. When we look at it that way, what could be more relevant than worship? I don't mean to set those two things at odds there. Uh, worship and Psalm 150 is relevant because it's about God. It's also relevant because 
it is about me in a sense. It's about what I was made for. This is, this is my chief end, right? This is our chief end, that we would know God and love Him and have Him. This is what we were made to do. Worshiping Him is what we were made for. Psalm 19 says this is what everything was made for. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 148 says, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. This is what the whole creation exists for. exists for the worship of God. As Calvin so famously said, this world is a theater for the glory of God to be on display. So what could be more relevant or important? Romans 11.36, From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. So nothing could be more important than worship. In his, in his book, Reformation Worship, uh, Johnny Gibson writes this. He says, The story of human history from beginning to end is the story of worship. Since the first son of God, Adam, through the national son of God, Israel, the royal son of God, Solomon, to the final son of God, Jesus, and now the redeemed sons of God, the church, God has been seeking a people to worship him. We are called to worship and our hearts are restless until we respond to that call by faith and obedience and come and feast on Christ. So this is why worship is important and why this psalm is so relevant. This has been God's goal, to, to glorify Himself. It's what we were made for. It's, it's, our, uh, it's our end. It's, it's what the infinite glory and beauty of God deserves. It's the highest joy that we can have to worship Him. So, Psalm 150 is all about that. So let's dive in. Psalm 150. We have four sections here that we'll, that we'll look at this psalm through. First is where we worship in verse 1. Where we worship. The psalm begins with this outburst. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, the Lord, of course, is, is, as we've said, it's how most English translations translate for us. The covenant name, Yahweh. Um, it's the name that refers to God as the great I am and the one who has forever bound himself to do his people good and be their, be their God. Um, then verse 1 here calls us to worship in a particular place. The first line says this, Praise God in his sanctuary. And so we're called here to worship God in his sanctuary. What does the word sanctuary mean? We, we looked at this just briefly this morning as well. It means a holy place. Praise God in the place that is holy. So for a Jew reading this, what are they going to think of? Probably the temple. All right, that's the holy place. There is a place in there called the, the holy place where that's where they worship God. That's the heart and center of religion in the Old Testament, the holy place. That's where God himself meets with his people. So they're called to worship God in that sanctuary. But then look at the next line there. The, the, the second part of verse 1 says, Praise Him in His mighty firmament. It's saying, Praise the Lord, where? In the heavens, in the skies, in the expanse. We read about this expanse. Genesis 1, 6-8, God said, Let there be an expanse or a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. So this is where we're supposed to praise God. In the holy place, in the heavens. 
both those things are brought together here in his temple and in the heavens. Right, so these two places are being brought together, the temple on earth and then the, the, heaven, the heavenlies that we look up and see filled with the stars. And both of these are representing something else for us. They're both representing God's heavenly temple, his holy place, uh, in, in, in his heavenly home. That's, that's, uh, God has given us the, the, the heavens with, with the stars and the, 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 the galaxies to be a display for us a, a, a shadowy picture for us of the glories of his heavenly temple. And he also gives the earthly temple as a copy, a replica of his heavenly temple. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, says Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Where's Isaiah? He's not in the earthly temple. He's having a vision of God's temple in heaven, God's, God's heavenly throne room where the, 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 the glory of God and the holiness of God fills that place. So we see this connection between the holy place of God that's being spoken of here in the psalm, and it's pointing us above to the heavenly temple of the Lord. What's the point? Well, Psalm 150 is saying, saying to us, worship God in the holy place, and it's drawing our attention to the heavenly temple. Right, this is, this is the climaxing psalm of the whole book of Psalms, calling us to the great consummation, the great uh, grand finale of our relationship with the Lord. And it's saying, worship God, where? In his holy, heavenly temple, in his heavenly presence. This is what we read about, too, in, in Hebrews 12. It describes it like this. It says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So the author of the Hebrews is saying, You Christians haven't come to Mount Sinai and seen the, you know, the, 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 the spectacular visuals that the Old Testament people saw. No, you've come to something better, something that can't be touched. What is it? He goes on, you've come to Mount Zion, talking about the heavenly one, the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Where does the church worship? Not on Mount Sinai, uh, not in the earthly temple, in the heavenly temple. When we worship God, loved ones, our worship is joining the worship of the saints and the angels in heaven. We are spiritually gathered with them in that temple, in the very throne room of God. The hymn, God himself is with us, puts it like this. God himself is with us. Let us now adore him and with awe appear before him. God is in his temple. All within keep silence. Prostrate lie with deepest reverence. God himself is with us. Hear the harps resounding. See the crowds, the thrones surrounding. Holy, holy, holy. Hear the hymn ascending. Angels, saints, their voices blending. When we worship God, where do we worship? 
we, we join our worship to that worship in the heavenly temple. We stand in the threshold of heaven in worship. That's where we worship. That's where the psalm calls us to worship. The second thing we see, though, is why we worship. That's in verse 2. Why we worship. Verse 2 starts like this. Praise Him for His mighty acts. So why should we worship? Because of the things God has done. These are the, these are the things He's done. He's created everything. He's the designer, the architect, the builder. He, he built it all. He sustains it all. Every galaxy and every atom. He made it all from, the, from the, uh, the flowers to the animals to the colors to the tastes and sounds and smells. He made everything, loved ones. He ordained everything that comes to pass. Moment by moment, He gives to His creation life, breath, and everything. Every, every moment of our lives, it falls out by His providence. Every single moment, every breath. What else has He done? Well, He's not only done these things, He's made a covenant with us. He's bound Himself to us in love. Uh, He's sent His Son to die for us. He's redeemed us from our sins. He's given us the Spirit to to unite us to that Son so we can have every spiritual blessing. He's defeated death itself. He's bringing us home to glory. He's, he's, He's accomplished every single aspect of our salvation. And that's what is in view in that little line there. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him for everything He's done. We could spend an eternity, couldn't we? Praising Him for everything He's done. We will spend an eternity praising Him for everything He's done. That's what we read in Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Praise Him for what He's done. We'll be singing that song forever. We'll never exhaust the glories of what God has done for us. But then look at with me at the second line of verse 2 there, if you have it open. So we, we said, praise Him for His acts. Now it says, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. There's a change there. You see it? The, the psalmist is, is bringing something else into view. First he said, praise God for what He's done. Now he's saying, praise God for who He is in Himself, apart from anything He's done. I read an article by Carl Truman recently reflecting on this. Truman writes this, Much of evangelical piety is concerned with what God does for us. Forgiveness, justification, sanctification, and glorification are all aspects of salvation and also form the staples of traditional evangelical hymns. And that's good and appropriate. God is a gracious God. Salvation is a glorious thing. It's right and proper that we give thanks to Him for the work that He has done, continues to do, and will complete in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible sanctions this doxology, this praise. The Psalter, that great benchmark for all Christian praise, contains many passages praising God for His actions in salvation. Yet the Psalms do more than that, Truman goes on. Indeed, in the Psalter, praise for God's actions rests upon assumptions of who God is in Himself. Indeed, the psalmist often praises God simply for being God. God as God is worthy of praise prior to any consideration of what He has done. That's so important for us to see. That's what we see right here, isn't it? 
We praise God for what He's done. We also need to learn to praise Him just for who He is. That everything He's, you know, even if, even if He had never done any of the things He has done, if He never created anything, and if He never redeemed us, He would still be worthy of infinite praise. Just because of who He is in Himself. Right? He is the glorious, the, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. He doesn't become worthy by creating and redeeming. He is worthy of worship for the sheer fact of His existence. His glorious being. He simply is worthy of praise. Truman writes this again. He says, We should be overwhelmed by a vision of a great God at the center of all things. Are you overwhelmed by that vision of God? Uh, do, you, do you praise Him for who He is? Do you praise Him for His holiness in Himself? Do you praise Him that He's the triune God and that you can't wrap your head around that mystery? Do you praise Him for, for, for His eternity or His unchangeableness, that he, that he is immutable, He cannot change? He is who He is forever and forever. Praise Him for His excellent greatness, for who He is as well as what he's done. At this point, then, the psalm tells us how we should worship God. So we've seen why, for what he's done and who he is. Now how, how we worship him in verses 3 through 5. The psalmist calls for the whole band to come out. He says, uh, trumpets, lutes, harps, tambourines, strings, pipes, loud clashing cymbals. He calls for all of them. Uh, these are all the instruments that, that would have been accompanying temple worship in the Old Testament. Um, these are the instruments that probably accompanied this very song um, that, that, that celebrates and exalts in the worship of God. It's hard to imagine this song being played with, with just one instrument. I'm sure they pulled out all of them for this one. And a great, you know, a, a great uh, swelling, triumphant accompaniment. What are we to make of this? There's no orchestra. Sunday nights is just a MIDI file. Um, Sunday mornings, it's a piano. Are we then to, 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 to change what we're doing and go get a bunch of instruments so that we can worship God according to this psalm? Well, are we in, are we in disobedience? Uh, if we are, I don't think it's because of the fact that we only have the piano. I don't think the point here is the instruments themselves. Um, these are the instruments that in the Old Testament did the best job of supporting the worship of the people of God uh, in the temple. Um, we don't see these same instruments. We don't, we don't see instruments called for in the New Testament. We see singing and, and praising God called for, Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, we're told to sing. Uh, we're not told what instruments to use or not to. Um, so some people draw from that, well, that means we shouldn't have any instruments at all. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think we can quite uh, get to that conclusion. But I think we can say safely that we should use whatever instruments are, are most conducive to the worship of God from the heart. Because that's where Paul goes in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, what I just read there. He says, Making melody to the Lord with your heart, with thankfulness in your hearts, 
to God. We should use then instruments that help people do that to the glory of God. We should use biblical wisdom to apply that to our own situation. So the psalm here I don't think is is too concerned exactly with what instruments we use. The focus is here that it's calling us to worship God with everything we have. With absolutely everything. To pull out all the stops and to worship Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For what He's done and for who He is. Right? If, If God is who He is and if He's done what He's done, how should we respond? Should our worship be timid? Cold? No, as the psalm says, praise Him with everything you've got. Pull out all the stops. Worship with all your heart. Remember that God is the audience, right? We're not the audience. It's so easy to come to worship passively. To come and, and, and to think that, that we're kind of the audience here. We're not, really. But the Lord is. We, we have come to bring Him an offering of praise, a sacrifice of praise. Something that will be pleasing to Him and, and pleasing in His sight. So we're supposed to bring our hearts actively, intentionally. We should pay attention to Jesus' warning. Matthew 15, 8. This people worships me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what Psalm 150 is after as well. A wholehearted worship. Okay, so we've seen where we worship in the heavenly temple. We've seen why we worship for God's acts and for his being. We've seen how we worship with everything we have. And now let's think about the final thing here, the fourth heading. Who should worship? Verse 6. Who should worship God? It's, it's clear, isn't it? Verse 6, it's right there. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Every living thing should praise Him. The psalmist is saying, everything in the universe should be praising God. Every creature, come shout hallelujah. Praise to the covenant Lord. Come and worship Him. He's, uh, he's calling Jew and Gentile to come and worship Him. Male and female, rich and poor. Everyone, come worship Him. And then the conclusion, not only to this psalm, but to the whole Psalter, is one final hallelujah. This is the end of the whole book, and this is the end of human history as well, isn't it? Hallelujah, as we, as we enter into the consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb, praising the Lord. It ends with calling us to worship Him. And once again, it ends with the name Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name. And that should, that should make us pause and think. Um, to remind us of Exodus 3.15, right? That's where we first see the Lord reveal directly to Moses. Moses says, what name shall I say? You, you know, who, who are you, God, that I should tell to this people? He says, I am who I am. Yahweh, I am the Lord. Uh, it's a statement of his total independence, his absolute self-sufficiency. He is who he is. There's none like him. Holy, holy, holy. But at the same time, not distant and remote, but the God who comes and binds himself to his people. He's saying to Moses, I am who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll be your God and the God of this people forever and ever. And, and that name, the Lord, as it brings to mind the covenant aspect of God's relationship with us, should bring to our mind the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant-keeping kindness and loyalty that we depend on. Where do we see this most clearly? Where do we see Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, and His covenant love most clearly? 
See it in Christ. In the Lord Jesus. And so, as we close out the psalm and the psalter and we sing praise the Lord, we should, we should have Christ in mind there. We are singing this uh, to, to Jesus Christ as well. He reveals himself to us as the, the great Emmanuel, God with us in the Scriptures. We should see here his love for us, his sacrifice for us. And we saw this earlier as we read in Revelation. Um, Revelation takes up this cry of hallelujah, and it, it, it speaks it to God, but it also is binding together throughout these chapters in Revelation 19 to 22. It is, it is glory to the Lord and to the Lamb who is slain, both of them. It, it brings these two things together. It takes the hallelujahs of the climax of the Psalter and pulls them into the new heavens and new earth and says these praises belong to the Lord and to the Lamb, both. They're equal in power and glory, are they not? So this hallelujah, as we close out the Psalter, is especially, yes, it's to the Lord. It's, it's also to the Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, the glorious thing is that it's not only Jesus that we sing that hallelujah to, it's also Jesus who makes us able to sing it in the first place and who leads us in singing it. We said as we started that we are to worship God. We're called to worship Him in the heavenly temple. We would have no place there apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We would have absolutely no right, no entry there. We would still be barred from the garden by the flaming sword. But in, in Christ, in Christ we can enter. Think about the Jews in the Old Testament. We get this picture of this. How do they enter the temple, the, the holy place? Well, they've got to cleanse themselves, wash themselves before they can come in. They've got to come in with a sacrifice. They don't get to go into the Holy of Holies, the heart of God's presence with His people. They send a high priest in once a year on the Day of Atonement. How much more are we banned from the heavenly temple by our sin and uncleanness? But, but we have a great high priest, don't we? The Lord Jesus, who comes and lays down His life for us and, and offers Himself as a sacrifice once for all and enters, opens and enters heaven and, and, and we are to follow him there. Hebrews 9, 24-26 says, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the reason we can worship God at all in his heavenly temple. Because he paid the price for our sin, cleansed us from our sin, clothed us with his perfect worship, his righteousness. So we draw near to God through him. So as we gather, loved ones, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we do so with Christ as our high priest, as our worship leader. He's the one standing before us as we come into the very presence of God. He's the one who leads us in worship itself. He's, he, he's the one who, who cries out hallelujah, and we, we meld our voices to his as we worship. Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And as we do, we do it looking forward to when we will enter the, the heavenly temple more than just spiritually, 
but when we will enter there ourselves. When we join our voices with the heavenly choir at the consummation that this psalm speaks of. Let me close the words of a prayer from the Valley of Vision, uh, which reflect on this. Most holy God, may the close of an earthly Sabbath remind me that the last of them will one day end. Animate me with joy that in heaven praise will never cease. Adoration will continue forever. No flesh will grow weary. No congregations disperse. No affections flag. No thoughts wander. No will droop. But all will be adoring love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the glories of who you are, what you've done, and, and that you've called us to be yours, and that you've made such a sufficient salvation for us in your Son so that we can have you as our blessedness and have you as our reward. Oh, Father, help us to, help us to uh, take these things to heart, to glory in you and to worship you with our whole life. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.